0: You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we are hearing our local reaction to the conviction of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the killing of George Floyd. HPR's Kuwehi Rishi joins us this morning. Hi.
1: Good morning, Catherine. A lot of the local sentiment in the aftermath of the guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial mirrors what's being said nationally. So, the idea that justice is a uh, far, far away from where we are at now—that the outcome of the trial was not justice, but rather accountability—and that the work begins now on systemic changes in the system—and uh, so these discussions are really going on at the same time that uh, some in uh, Hawaii's communities of color are actually reeling with uh, the police shootings in two instances of individuals from communities of color here in Hawaii who were uh, unarmed, as far as we know. Now, there are a lot of questions we should say surrounding both are being investigated by the Honolulu Police Department. In one case, uh, two weeks ago, a 16-year-old Chukiz man, uh, Iremamba Sycap was shot by police while uh, following what HPD says was a crime spree of sorts. And then about Uh, exactly a week ago, a 29-year-old South African uh, man, Lindani Mayeni, was killed after a violent altercation uh, with HPD officers. I know the body cam footage was released on that. The community is still waiting for the release of the body cam footage in the case of Psycap. And so, this is all the the coming down of the of the verdict in the case really came at a time when the community was already thinking about what's going on in terms of policing communities of color here in Hawaii.
0: Right. So the question is, you know, was the force they used excessive? Was it justified? I understand in the case of the minor, the mm-hmm. uh, H P D says that they found a replica gun uh, right. because there was a you know alleged armed robbery earlier leading up to his shooting. Right. So. Lots of questions, but obviously people are,
1: are wondering what's going on here. Exactly. And and it's really um, forcing folks to, to rethink what it means to police communities of color here in Hawaii, especially when it comes to the use of force, as you mentioned, lethal force, and also in cases of racial bias that might exist implicit or explicit on all parties. So uh, in the case of Uh, Mr. Mayani, we know that someone from the neighborhood in I'uanu had called 911 saying there is a burglary in progress and that this is the guy. And so the idea about racial bias and whether it played a role in that entire process is something that uh, Wookie Kim, legal director over at the ACLU of Hawaii, has really been grappling with in trying to figure out how to move forward.
2: The fact that Mr. Mayani was a black man it raises some serious questions about how racial bias uh, played a role in the whole encounter. We can talk about the officer's sudden escalation to
3: the use of deadly force,
2: um, but there's also the question of uh, the the caller and and that person's reaction to what was happening.
4: That all of this occurred,
2: of course, within a couple weeks of the shooting of of PSYCAP, another unarmed person of color, and of course, who is a 16-year-old boy. It just raises uh, serious questions.
1: So a lot more questions than answers. According to the HPD, the investigation, at least in the PSYCAP case, will take, could take months. In terms of the body cam footage, according to HPD, there's something like 50 different body cam sources that they need to go through and they want to be thorough in that investigation um to really get the facts and figure out what happened before it's released to the public and that's something that the aclu and and criminal justice uh reform advocates are really frustrated about and and you know the, the idea of uh sort of having the not vilify, vilifying uh some in the community before the facts are out there is something that's uh sort of a concern. Right. I
0: mean, HPD has to proceed carefully, you know, but we have seen other instances where they did release a body cam footage. Uh, You know, we had the DUI of Representative Sharon Haar, and that was released. Uh, And this, obviously, they have said it involves minors. So they're a little more reluctant to just put it out there right now, uh, because you know, I think either way they go, there's going to be finger pointing. So um you kind of understand that. And then we are also just coming off of that fatal shooting, you know, of the two officers, right, when they mm. were responding to yes. a, an incident of an eviction there and at Diamond Head. And and we saw multiple homes burn in that situation uh, because the officers couldn't get in because all the ammunition was uh, was going off. So, yeah, you know, case by case, I guess you really have to, to look at whether excessive force was used. Was it appropriate? You know, did the officers have proper training? You know, exactly. all those kinds of things are coming up now.
1: And those uh, are questions that I uh, spoke to UH law professor Ken Lawson about, and he doesn't have as much faith in the HPD investigation process and would actually like to see federal investigators or federal intervention into uh, into the matter.
0: Well, I, I thought it was interesting that that review commission uh, has finally mm. uh, gotten back on track because, yeah, now we've had multiple officer-involved uh, fatal cases. And so I
1: think it's warranted with
0: just the concern nationwide, uh, just to say, you know, what are we doing here? How do we go forward? And and what's fair?
1: Right. And those are all questions that uh, are being considered right now and talked about in the community.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much, Kubehi. Mahalo. We have been talking to HBR's Kuvehi Reishi. To find her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, HonoluluMuseum.org.
1: The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to the Cole Academy, Maui Chamber Orchestra, and Foodscapes Hawaii. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from St. Andrew's Schools in downtown Honolulu, offering single-gender education for girls K through 12 and boys K through 6. With an open house Tuesday, April 27th. Registration at standrewsschoolsorg house.
0: This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
6: umau, <laughs>
0: For today's quiz, we look back at the history of Filipino immigration to Hawaii. Laborers, known as cicadas, left home to seek better lives for themselves and their families. In those early days, cicadas were among the least skilled and lowest paid. They also faced plenty of racial discrimination, a situation that came to a head in 1924 when Filipino laborers organized a strike against the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association. As Dan uh, Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Asian American Studies and Coordinator of Filipino American Studies at San Francisco State University, wrote, they face goons and gangsters. He called a strike one of the bloodiest in Hawaii's history. Those days are long gone, but this morning we are looking for the year that the first wave of Filipino settlers arrived. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
5: Support for the backyard quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, NairitHawaii.com.
0: This week, Oahu opened up the vaccine appointment lines to those 16 and older. The state says it is seeing a softening of the demand on the neighbor islands. Health officials caution we're not out of the woods yet as the variants of the virus are circulating and they point to growing numbers on Maui. We talked to Hilton Rathel, head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, about the snapshot.
4: The overall demand is going well on Oahu in particular because it's just opened up to 16 and above this week. Well, 16 and above for Pfizer and 18 and above for Moderna. And so demand is quite strong here. However, we are starting to experience a softening of demand on some of the neighbor islands, which is concerning because we still have a long way to go to get to that all-important herd immunity number.
0: With the announcement by the governor on the vaccine, you know, passports, this is just maybe more impetus for our uh, local residents to think about getting the shots because it might make it easier for travel inter-island?
4: We're very pleased, actually, with this type of announcement or incentives because we believe it's going to take quite a bit of work to get everyone vaccinated who needs to be vaccinated. And... The incentive of being able to travel inter with if you are vaccinated without having to get a pre-test or a post-test or any type of quarantine. And the U- University of Hawaii, for example, is talking about requiring a vaccination for students coming back in the fall. And there are other incentives that are going on out there as well. There is one employer on the mainland, for example, who is actually offering a $600 bonus to employees for vaccination. So we are supportive of any reasonable effort to get people vaccinated. And we understand that there is a variety of reasons why people may be cautious about getting vaccinated, but the vaccines have been demonstrated to be very, very effective and they are very, very safe. And we do need to get to a critical mass in order to appropriately protect the people of Hawaii.
0: You know, I know just reaching out to my friends and family and colleagues when someone has gotten the first or the second shot, we're all asking, how you doing? Any side effects? You know, because I think we're all concerned that, you know, you want folks to have a good experience with this vaccine, but there are folks that, you know, will have reactions.
4: Yeah, and that is a concern because no one wants to feel badly, and there is a variety of reactions that, that many people get, not all. It might kick in 12, 24 hours after the shot and generally the second shot has more consequences than the first shot but overwhelmingly the symptoms while they are problematic for a day maybe you know 24 or 36 hours overwhelmingly people get over those and feel perfectly fine afterwards so it just might be a rough 12 hours or 20 24 hours and that's only for some people many people do not have any side effects at all and the important thing to remember is that while there may be some temporary mild side effects from the vaccine, the consequences of not being vaccinated and contracting COVID are much more severe. People can end up in hospitals, and they still are. People are still dying, unfortunately. There have been multiple cases in the U.S. of organ failure because of COVID. And there's um, other consequences as well. So the the side effects from the vaccine are very, very mild, overwhelmingly, than the impact of actually getting COVID. You know, it's a little frustrating that people are saying, look, well, I don't want to get vaccinated. You know, I've, I've, I've heard people, I mean, they, they may have non people um, who got COVID and, you know, got through it fine. but. No one knows if, you know, for the people who do get COVID, how severe the reaction may be. Uh, Right now, today, for example, we have about 40 people in our hospitals across the state who are there because of COVID. And so that is continuing to go on. And I would, I personally do not want to, you know, be in a hospital with COVID simply because I did not want to get a shot or two shots that may put me out of commission for a day or so. So being out of commission for a day, you know, just because you're not feeling well, got some fevers, got some chills, whatever it is, again, that's that's a lot better than uh, run the risk of being in hospital or potentially even death.
0: The setback with Johnson & Johnson, you think that if we get to go ahead soon from the CDC that that people will respond, you know, to that? vaccine being offered at clinics.
4: You know, there's a valid reason to be concerned about the side effects. There were about 6.7 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine administered in the U.S. to date. And of those 6.7 million doses, they discovered complications with about six of them related to blood clotting. Now, that's a pretty small number, you know, almost one in a million. The chances of someone getting a blood clot from COVID is much, much higher. So do agree that it was the wise thing to do to put a temporary hold on the vaccine. The vaccine overall is still incredibly safe and incredibly effective. And what people need to understand is that, you know, we're living in a different world now than what we were living in 18 months ago. COVID didn't exist 18 months ago or at least it didn't exist in the human population. It exists now. We're going to have to learn to live with it. It's not going away. And we have to understand that there are ongoing consequences to living with COVID in the world. And so the vaccination, getting people vaccinated, even when there are these few very rare side effects it's much better for us to get vaccinated than to than for the population not to be vaccinated.
0: And we're hearing more and more about the COVID-19 long haulers. Uh, what can you share with us about that?
4: Well, there is, we're learning things every day and every week about the long haulers and how significant those impacts are. So there's a variety of impacts. It affects multiple organs. There is uh, one study I was reading today where they were talking about the number of people who had COVID and were hospitalized and ended up ended up being readmitted. So there's a fairly much higher um, readmission rate for people who have COVID than people who've not had COVID. So there's all sorts of consequences for uh, people who have gotten COVID and um, have side effects or symptoms for many, many months, whether it's brain fog whether it's, you know, you just can't think clearly, you can't move properly, um, lack of motivation, lack of energy, impact on different body systems. There is a lot of different consequences, and we're still learning how to deal with those. Now, there is some evidence that actually getting the vaccine can help with those symptoms. It's still a very new field of science or field of medicine, and we are learning every day how to deal with it, but what the impacts are. But there is a large body of evidence that COVID-19 can impact individuals for many weeks and even many, many months, which is not a good thing for people to go through and another reason to for people to get vaccinated.
0: Are you folks getting lots of questions about uh, children and the vaccines? I, I know they're just starting to do the, some of the trials
4: Pfizer just submitted recently a request to the FDA for approval to get the Pfizer vaccine accepted for children who are between 12 and 15, and we believe that will be successful. There's lots of different clinical trials going on. The initial results from those trials are very, very promising and are showing efficacy rates even better than that of adults. So Right now, the evidence is looking very, very good that these vaccines will be very safe and very effective for children. And we do have an expectation that later this year, maybe even toward the end of the summer, that there will at least be one vaccine available, at least for some children. Now, there are trials going on right now all the way down to six months of age, but those trials have not been completed. And there's about 260,000 children uh individuals between zero and 15 in Hawaii. And we are looking to be able to get as many of those vaccinated as possible, as well as the uh, adults and older populations.
0: Anything you want to add just about the variants and uh, the sense of urgency about making sure that people who can get vaccinated do get the shots?
4: The variants are a continual concern. There are new variants popping up on a regular basis And that is really, really problematic and very, very challenging because the more variants there are out there, the the higher the probability they will spread. And the more variants there are, the the chances are that there will be variances developed that are more easily transmissible and that are even more deadly than the original virus itself. So the sooner we can get people vaccinated or get to herd immunity, break the chain of transmission, the sooner we can control these variants. But one of the other issues is the more variants that are out there, the higher the likelihood that the vaccines we have will not be as effective against these variants. So, again, the more people we can get vaccinated as quickly as possible, then the less the chance there is for these variants to spread and to create even more havoc that the original virus has done. One of the reasons that Maui has gone through a challenging period in the last few weeks is that more than 60% of the infections over there that they have tested have been the variant. And this particular variant is more easily transmissible than the other variants. And that's one of the reasons why it's it's spreading as much and why just going back a couple of weeks, um, almost half of the hospitalized patients in the state we're in Maui, so, and it was, again, because of the spread of this very highly transmissible variant. So they are a real problem, and another reason, again, why we, you know, we're encouraging people and encouraging employers and schools to, do, you know, to work with their students, to work with their employees, to get as many people vaccinated as possible.
0: That was Hilton Rachel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, talking about the vaccine snapshot across the state. the end of the legislative session is just a week and a half away, and the prospects of passing a bill to raise the minimum wage is looking bleak. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So the headline in your story is, why is it so hard to pass a minimum wage increase in Hawaii? So what's the answer?
6: Well, uh, this time around, the um, it turns out the key, a key legislator, Representative Richard Onishi, um, who's the chair of the House Labor and Tourism Committee, um, said that, you know, he just doesn't want to hold a hearing. Um, he thinks that uh, now is not the time to, to p- pass a minimum wage bill to increase the minimum wage. It would have increased to $12 from just over 10 Uh, And uh, he had a couple of reasons. One, uh, again, he wants businesses to get uh, a a bit more stable um, coming out of the pandemic. Um, He also pointed to a uh, study uh, done by University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization that cited other studies saying that um, an increase uh, could actually uh, lead to lower wages cumulatively uh, being paid out to workers as, as businesses retrench or cut hours. We, we can discuss that a bit more later. Um, but th- those were his ma- – and he said, you know, there are other things that he thought could help uh, working people who are struggling more, like uh, bills to help with housing, uh, child care, um, other things that, that really uh, make the cost of living so high here for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, people may not realize, you know, ten dollars—that that's basically, you know, what we pay. On uh, that's the minimum here, and that you know right. barely covers a plate lunch these days.
6: Right, and and you know, the thing is, the the touchstone I think for a lot of people, um, and and it's widely discussed uh, among the the public and policymakers, is is the uh, the Alice report. This is something that the Aloha United Way put together, sponsored by Bank of Hawaii and um, Hawaii Community Foundation. And, and it found that, you know, people need quite a bit more than $10 an hour to make it here. You know, they're saying the Alice Report, and, and again, they're looking at people, um, people who are working but still struggling and barely getting by. To just barely get by, um, it found that uh, people need $15 an hour. Um, older people which ha- who have higher expenses could need $17 an hour working full-time to make it. Uh, so yeah, the $10 an hour, if that's really what people are getting paid, just is not enough to make it. And this seems to be pretty widely understood. Um, the question is how to change it.
0: So he's been pretty hard-nosed then, just no hearing. Uh, now's not the time.
6: Right, and and that was the thing, you know. I, we asked, and and it really was the premise of the story, not to debate whether the minimum wage is uh, should be raised or not, but really to ask uh, the legislator why would he not even hold a hearing on it uh, to have it discussed and debated. And he, again, that was his answer. Uh, so it doesn't look like it's going to happen, even a hearing. At the same time, it seems all it seems like an increase in the minimum wage is almost inevitable. The Senate. Uh, push this through very quickly with with no problems no amendments um, little dissension and it, it went through to the house and again it, it just sort of stopped in the house um, so it it seems like if it, it could come up again um, if somehow it's not rescued this session and um, I if it's true what people say, that the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of the wage increase, that it won't hurt um, workers in the end, that, that that employers won't cut back on hours or wages or other things or, or jobs uh, in order to, to make up for this. Um, if that's true, then maybe it'll pass. But this time, it's not going to pass.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're already into the... Uh, the uh uh, conference committees, so we don't have much time.
6: Right. So, again, um, that's, the, that's the situation. Um, you know, the, what, what Representative Onishi did say is, though, that, you know, he does want to work on other things like, like I said, like housing um, and child care. These are two things that affect so many people and that could lower the cost of living and make it so that people had an easier time. Um, which is really the goal, I think, of the minimum wage increase to make sure people can actually survive here.
0: Well, we'll see what they come up with in another week and a half. But thanks so much, Stuart.
6: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to address the impacts of COVID-19 by increasing local food supply, investing in youth with scholarships, and helping to support the needs of the most vulnerable island residents, Foundation.org.
0: The Hawaii Tourism Authority is under scrutiny as lawmakers have been eyeing its funding and are looking to redefine its scope. Critics are looking for HTA to better manage tourism. HTA's proposed action plans for Maui, Kauai, and the Big Island and is about to launch Oahu's. We talked to Carolyn Anderson, HTA's Director of Community Enrichment. Uh, HTA plans to release a draft action plan for Oahu next Tuesday and needs public feedback.
3: We really want to hear from the community, you know, their concerns and also their, we call it, solution-based actions that they want to provide to us so that we can learn and understand from the community what kind of tourism that they want for this island, for Oahu. We did destination management action plans for Hawaii, Hawaii Island, Maui Nui, so Maui, Molokai, and Lanai late last year. All of the plans were approved, and we're starting to implement on some of the actions already. And last month, we started meeting with the Oahu Steering Committee to start formating the actions with them.
0: Okay, so what will the Oahu action plan look like? What do you plan to release? What is it that people need to know?
3: What we plan to share at these community presentations that take place the first week of May is the the draft actions that the steering committee came up with. We're right now in the process of writing out the actions, so it will be made available next week, Tuesday, for the public to review, and then the following week we'll have the community presentations where they can hear how the actions were formed you know, a lot of the topics that came about is, you know, the notion of regenerative tourism, like tourism that will give back to the future generations here that take care of this place, the natural resources, the Hawaiian culture, as well as community overall. There were also discussion about, you know, making sure that we're buying local, that the money stays within Hawaii or on Oahu. So that's just broad broadly I'm speaking. And again, we're fine-tuning the draft actions right now. So I don't have an idea yet of what the actions are. I'm just giving you the broad sense of the categories. The actions for each island are different.
0: Okay, give us an example of how each plan is different.
3: So, for example, on Hawaii Island, there's this notion of, you know, everything is very much place-based. Aina-based as far as managing of resources of sites, whereas on Maui, for example, the idea of issues of traffic, of controlling rental cars, that came up more in the Maui Destination Management Action Plan. For Kauai, I would say it was like the others in that strong sense of making sure that Hawaiian culture is preserved and protected and is being portrayed in an authentic manner. Actually, that ran across all the plans. For Kauai, I would say the idea of making sure that there's other forms of diversification for the island, that was important. But they also recognized that, for now, tourism is important for Kauai's economy. You know, in the future, wanted to make sure that it is diversified as well.
0: And going back to Maui, you know, because you've got, the different islands, you know, Moloka'i, Lanai. Were there any other things that were particular to those islands?
3: Yeah, for um, Lanai, they wanted to make sure that the Lanai businesses benefited from tourism, and they wanted to make sure that Lanai City was promoted as well, you know, just to make sure that the businesses have direct benefit from tourism. Again, and it's also about protecting their natural resources as well. For Moloka'i for that island, it was all about making sure that it's the type of tourism the island wants, and that they rather see visitors, kamaaina visitors, and also visitors who understand how special and unique Molokai is. That was important for them.
0: With Oahu, we're obviously dealing with you know most of the island's population. Were well, there some other factors that you see that make it different from the other islands?
3: there's a lot more, I guess, diversity for this island. But I think that the steering committee members, even though everyone comes from different backgrounds, like we wanted to make sure that the steering committee, actually all the steering committees, that they're diverse, like it not only represented Um, visitor industry, but also natural resources, Hawaiian culture, other state and county agencies are part of this steering committee as well. We just know that, you know, Oahu has more visitors as well as infrastructure needs as well that should be taken care of. What we want from the community is for them to, you know, hear the actions, for them to give input to these actions. And there's two ways that they could provide input. One is at the community meetings, and the other way is through an online input form. What we really want to make sure that, you know, what we want to show through the Destination Management Action Plans is that community engagement can work and it is necessary for tourism in Hawaii. We have about a two week period for people to provide us input through the online input form. And after that, then the steering committee will meet back to review all of the comments and feedback from the community. We also will post it online so that everyone can see the different feedback from the community, um, looking at having a draft plan in beginning of June for the steering committee to uh, review and finalize. And then it goes before our board at the end of July.
0: That was Carolyn Anderson, head of community enrichment for HTA, talking about the rollout of the draft Oahu action plan that will be available next week. On a related matter, uh, last week we told you about a statewide survey about recreational uses in our state parks. That one is sponsored by the Department of Land and Natural Resources. There will be a meeting for Oahu tonight from 6 to 7.30 p.m., a virtual meeting. For links to both these events, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii, Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to a native heron. And thanks to Cornell Lab of Ornithology for today's field recordings.
7: The al or black-crowned night heron, is the only heron that is common across the Hawaiian islands that's an indigenous species, meaning that it's native here as well as other parts of the world. As their name implies, these herons have black crowns that run down their backs with light gray undersides, yellow legs, and piercing red eyes. Juveniles, though, look different from adults. They're mostly brown with light speckling. Alku'u can be found near most shallow, fresh, and saltwater areas, where they feed on a variety of small aquatic animals like fish and frogs, and sometimes even mice and baby birds. When Alku'u are standing still, they often have a hunchback appearance but their long neck becomes apparent when they walk. These graceful, broad-winged water birds can often be seen in flight in the mornings and evenings, which is also the best time to hear their loud, hoarse call. black crowned night herons are excellent at fishing and are even known to use pieces of bread or other objects to lure in fish with the bait, an unusual form of use in birds. Oku'u are one of the many birds mentioned in the Kumulipo. Hawaiian creation chant For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the biology department at UH Hilo.
0: From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Mono Minute. HPR's latest podcast now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed.
5: Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about Filipino labor in Hawaii. Records showed that the first dozen or so Sakata workers arrived aboard the SS Doric. They were assigned to Ola'a Sugar in Keau. Over the next four decades, approximately 125,000 Filipinos were recruited by the Hawaii Sugar Planters Association to work in the fields growing sugarcane and pineapple. Most of the settlers came from the Visayas and the Ilocos regions of the Philippines. According to the 2000 U.S. Census, Filipinos and part Filipinos constitute 275,728 or nearly 23% of the state's population. And that's slightly more than the Hawaiian and part Hawaiian population. About 70% of the Filipino population lives here on the island of Oahu. Today, we asked you for the year that the wave of migration started, and the answer is 1906. Congrats to Marcus of Eva Beach, who came by way of Arkansas. You got it right. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one that you'd like to share, write to Talk Back at HawaiiPublicRadio.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring outdoor pop up installations across the museum. Now on view. HonoluluMuseum.org.
1: Aloha ia no Oh, Noah, uh, oh.
0: Earth Day and Earth Month is celebrated in April, but cleaning the earth is a year-round effort. Today we hear from the Maui Nui Marine Resources Council. It has a new tool to help track its progress in cleaning up pollution in Ma'alaya Bay. We talked to program and operations manager Amy Hodges about the help it's getting from nearshore sensors from PACIUS, the Pacific Island's ocean observing system.
2: Ma'alaya Bay is the center of Maui here on the leeward coast, and unfortunately it is home to impaired waters. And when I say impaired, that means they're failing to meet the state standards set by the State Department of Health. So the waters in Ma'alaya Bay have really high nutrient levels, excess nutrients too many, and certainly are home to a lot of brown water events when we get all that brown water runoff coming from the land. So unfortunately... You know, we love Ma'alaya Bay and it's home to a beautiful reef ecosystem, but it's struggling with water quality.
0: So we've got lots of potential sources that are helping to degrade the waters there.
2: Yes. Yeah. You know, when you think about Ma'alaya in the middle of Maui, you can kind of see what might be impacting it. Because it's surrounded by agriculture fields, both historically, you know, legacy ag and current practices. We also have a huge You know, human population living on the coastline here, and with humans comes wastewater. So we have wastewater uh, treatment situations going on along the coastline, a variety of different kinds of wastewater treatment, but all of that has to go somewhere, too. And so Ma'alaya Bay and Ma'alaya Harbor is the recipient of things coming off the land and things coming from our own bodies. And you have a
0: number of projects that are helping to try to mitigate some of that pollution. Uh, you have, I think, planted oysters there, right, not too long ago to see, how, you know, if they can do the trick?
2: Yeah, we did. We have our oyster pilot project going on in Ma'alaya Harbor. So the oysters are there as little filters, their nature's filter. Just when they're alive, the way that they eat and survive is by filtering their food out of the water. And when they filter water for the, looking for their food source, they also filter out a lot of the bad pollutants that are in our water. So they're really doing us a favor just by being present. So, yeah, we put in a bunch of oysters, over 10,000 of them, in 2020 in Ma'alaya Harbor. And they're in cages in there, and we take care of them. And, you know, if they're alive and in there doing their job, then they're helping to clean the water.
0: Yeah, every little bit helps. You've just got, then, a new tool to help monitor your progress.
2: We did, yes. We're so lucky to receive on loan from Ius, which is the... Pacific Island Ocean Observing System, they loaned us one of their water quality sensors. And so we put that in the harbor back in August of 2020, and we'll have it for a year there. And it's a big sonde or a sensor that we install underwater in the harbor, and it stays underwater. And every five minutes, it takes a reading for us of the water condition. The benefit of that is, you know, it's continuous. It's doing it right now while we're talking. It's taking readings so you get this, fluctuation and measurement over time you can really get a good picture of, of what's happening in the harbor
0: and I'm sure then that'll be a nice baseline too if you you know we have a rain event and there's runoff or if I don't know somebody's cesspool has issues yeah. I mean you at least be able to monitor what's happening
2: absolutely yeah before this we only really had grab samples or single spot samples of a single moment of time, someone went out and took a sample of water and you just get a picture of what's happening right at that moment. But now we have this continuous, it'll be there for a year, so we'll get a whole year baseline. You get different tide cycles, you get storms, you get you know any accidents that might happen in the harbor, you get runoff from parking lots and the road. All of that will show up on the data from this sensor from IUS. And we can use that to compare you know, past historic events, we can use it in the future to see, you know, if our efforts to help the watershed are making a difference, or the impacts of, you know, climate change and global warming, what's happening. It's just, it's just so useful to have that year-round data for a whole year in one place.
0: So this special sensor package that mm-hmm. you've got, I mean, describe it. Is it very large? Is it difficult to put in place? You know,
2: it's not hard at all. It's about maybe a meter long, and, you know, half half a foot wide, it's, it kind of looks like a bunch of wires, and, and it's mounted on a post. And then, so you can hold it in your arms, kind of like a baby, and we install it uh, via scuba. So a handful of Maui Nui Marine Resource Council staff, once a month, go scuba diving in the harbor, and we bring the sonde up, we take it off of whatever it's been mounted to, we upload the data on land, and then go down and we put it in a new spot around the harbor. So every month it kind of marches around the harbor. We can put it over by an outfall of a drainage ditch. We could put it over by the oysters. We could put it by the harbor mouth to see, you know, what that fresh influx of open ocean water does. Yeah, it's pretty good. And then, you know, every time we dive each month, we get to take a look around the harbor and see what's going on, see what's in there.
0: Okay, so then they're fixed to a certain place in the bay, and moved around mm-hmm. from month to month. But you also then have been using, what, some other equipment, right, to gather behind a kayak?
2: <laughs> yeah, we have kind of a much smaller version of this sand and it's called a Manta, is the brand, and we actually got that via a grant from Lush Cosmetics, which are based in Lahaina. But the Manta sonde we tow behind a, a kayak, or we can stand and hold it down into the water. But we like to do transect toes behind the kayak and we'll paddle around the harbor and it does continuous readings for us. And we can set that to take a reading, you know, every second or every two minutes, depending on how often you want the reading to come in. And that gives us a real picture of, you know, a moment in time as we're moving it around during one day, you know, where is the freshwater input as we paddle around? Where is there seem to be a seep coming in? Uh, So that. That sond is a really nice pairing with our grab sample and with the pack ice sond, really getting a nice picture of what's going on in the harbor. So
0: the one that you drag behind a kayak is that more like surface waters that you're targeting? I don't know how far down in the water column you know you can go with that.
2: So that one certainly, when we're dragging it, we keep it pretty close to the surface because we just don't want to run the chance of it, you know, hitting anything below the surface that we can't see. But it does have a long data cord attached to it. So if we were to be walking along the edges of the harbor or off a boat, we could suspend it as deep as we want into the water column. And we do do that. We'll go off into the jetty at the harbor, or we'll go along the beach shoreline, and uh, and just drop in and take a reading, then pull it up a foot wait, take a reading, another foot higher, take a reading. So you get this water column, and description of data.
0: And then what other studies have you been doing You know, to look at the nutrient situation?
2: So the nutrients, some of our grab samples, we do analyze from nutrient input. And so we use the University of Hawaii-Maui College Lab to analyze that data for us. And we also use the SOAS Lab at UH Manoa. And another thing that was kind of unique we did last year is we collected limu or algae, macroalgae samples from along the Ma'alaya coast. And we dried them, you pound them into a, you grind them into a powder, and we sent those to a lab to be analyzed for a nitrogen isotope ratio. And the limu or the algae is really interesting because it absorbs nitrogen or excess nutrients from the water over time, during its lifetime in the harbor, so instead of just getting a quick snapshot of nitrogen, nitrogen or excess nutrient levels like you would with a sample of water, the nitrogen that shows up in the limu tissue tells you a little more over time what that plant has been exposed to and what it's been taking up. And so the ratio of the nitrogen isotope that we get back from the lab tells us, okay, what might be the source it helps us kind of Take out what category of source poll- the nitrogen might be coming from. Is this excess nitrogen coming from wastewater? Or is it coming from you know, ag- uh, legacy agriculture fertilizer? So where are these excess nutrients in our water coming from? And that's what the, the LiMu nitrogen isotope ratios tell us. And, and it was, yeah, that was the first time we had done that it was last year.
0: So whether it's the uh, oysters or the seaweed... Uh, they're all kind of working in concert to try and clean up the the pollution that gets in our waters. You know, there there's also a lot of erosion, and mm. we lose a lot of soil, not just in Maui, but, you know, just about every island, I think, deals with this issue.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We have a ton of erosion in Maui, and, you know, a lot of this is from wildfire. That area, anyone who lives on Maui knows that that area is prone to having wildfires right now. You know, historically, we've seen one about every other year in that area. And, of course, when fire comes through land, it burns off the vegetation, and then we start to lose our topsoil, and that's where we see the erosion come down. Of course, we know on Maui that we have ungulates. Ma'alaya, not as bad, but historically, we did have ungulate use in that area. And then, of course, you know, roads, dirt bikes, all kinds of things can cause erosion. So we see that in Ma'alaya.
0: Okay, and so then this new tool that you'll be able to use, the sensor from PAC i use, just helps give you a better picture of, of uh, if you're making any headway.
2: Yeah, it does. You know, we had it in the water this past January, and we happened to have a series of rain events or, or rain, significant storm rain in Ma'alaya uh, on three separate days, three separate, separate storm events. And what we could see when we uploaded the data from this Pacayo Sond that was in the harbor over that month is we could see kind of a baseline of turbidity or how you know, how brown is the water, how much sediment is floating around in it. And then you look at the date where the rain event came, and you just see the spike, the spike in the turbidity data graph. And you're like, bam, there's your rain event. That's what's happening. Because we saw with our eyes, we saw it coming down off the watershed, running right through the drainage ditches and out into the harbor. But there's the data on the graph from the pond, this big spike in turbidity. And then you can see how long it sticks around, how much, you know, for the duration of this brown water event. And you can see, you know, one, two days later, a spike in the responding chlorophyll, which is, you know, the algae bloom that's resulting after this excess nutrients come down in this brown water event and things start getting mixed up. So you start to see this chain of reactions that the, the erosion has caused in our water we're working really hard you know the oysters are a great great natural solution to help remove any pollutants that make it to the water uh, the sawn is a great tool for us to use to understand what's happening but the biggest thing the most important thing a large effort for us is to prevent this erosion and this excess nutrients from ever reaching the water so it really starts on land with what we're doing our land practices and our wastewater treatment so that's that's where we need to focus our efforts moving forward.
0: That was Amy Hodges of the Maui Nui Marine Resources Council talking about the efforts to prevent the polluting of Ma'alaya Bay. Well, that's it for today, up tomorrow. Malama the Aina, the Hawaii Island Seed Bank, is at the forefront of preserving native plants for future generations. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback. A color talk back line 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at the Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works too, talkback at Hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard, find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.